equals spin The propaganda's win Stress feeding on my attention My countrymen, they love their fiction Words are now This made with good intentions Welcome to One of 200, the Independent Media and Politics Podcast. It's another current events episode, and there's, again, too much to talk about this week as the campaign continues uh, for the 2023 election in New Zealand. Just the utter deluge of both international news, which generally affects us, but also local news around policy release and perception politics being covered by uh, the media here continues apace. I've got uh, returning co-hosts, Mark and Josephine. How are you doing, folks? Hilda, I'm doing very well. Thank you very much, Kyle. Kia ora, Kyle. So, yeah, I'm, I'm good-ish. <laughs> and uh, for the first time on the podcast, uh, we've also got Summer. How are you doing? Very good. Kia ora, Koto. Thank you for having me on. Um, and, yeah, do you just want to give a quick intro um, about where you come from? Sure. So I run Aotearoa Liberation League with um, Pere, my husband. Uh, I was born in Iraq, but I've been in Aotearoa for 22 or so years. Um, and I'm living up north at the moment near Dargaville. Fantastic. Thanks so much for joining us today. Really excited to have you on. Thank you. So I want to cover a few of the things that have been popping into the political discourse this week. Uh, we've seen, I'm going to say, using this horrible word again, um, interesting uh, to describe the way that the discussion around equity criteria um, has developed this week with National Act seem to seeming to really ramp up the rhetoric to, to levels not seen since Don Brash, really. Uh, we've had a continuing... I, I, it's not really a discussion so much as a lack of discussion around tertiary funding. We've had uh, a whole bunch of perception politics stuff happening alongside some some big mistakes out of Labour ministers. And then we've had way too much international news um, as well. But let's kick off with what's been happening in the health and equity space because it really seemed from the outset that uh, the ACT Party, some of the outriders, and then uh, the National Party, uh, and Chris Luxon in particular, were trying to to drive a, a racist wedge on this. Uh, so this is the, uh, the news came out. It was, it was, uh, the news was broken by News Talk ZB that there were going to be some uh, new criteria. In fact, these criteria had been around for a while to help judge where people end up on a surgery waiting list um, to promote better outcomes, essentially, uh, for people that were not well served by the system. Um, one of those criteria was ethnicity, but the entire pitch um, at the very front end of the story was that it was only really ethnicity. Um, and... Yeah, ACT and National jumped on that, um, started using their lines about apartheid again, uh, which is just becoming increasingly bizarre how unchallenged that's going in the mainstream discourse. Yeah, you've you've done some some work on that this week, Summer. Um, you've had a video out about it. What was what was your take from um, you know the way that 
that kicked off? I had a lot of reflections on it. Um, as a sort of side note, I think it's funny how much these groups rely on identity politics, given how much they attack it, you know, and then when it's relevant, they sort of pull out the, uh, their Māori ministers to um, repeat these attack lines. Um, but most interesting to me has been the way that our society doesn't seem to really understand what racism is. You know, we sort of, the media and other politicians often refer, refer to it as like dog whistling. And, um, you know, they often say stuff like, oh, they're not really racist at heart. They're just saying this to get votes. But I think that's a fundamental misunderstanding of what racism is because my understanding of racism is a pattern of actions that causes disproportionate harm to people based on their ethnicity. That definition is fulfilled through these policies that national acts are putting through, and that seems fairly obvious to me that that is therefore racist. And so, you know, I think they've successfully um, popularized this idea that to judge a person, you judge them quite on quite shallow means. You know, the, the colonial narrative of manners, if you have manners, if you dress nice, if you speak well, that's how people judge your character. That's a very convenient way for these people to have their character judged because then they can perpetuate racist policies, but because in their interpersonal interactions, they're polite, um, people don't point out or don't see the racism. And so, yeah, I think we need to have a national conversation about what racism is. It's not what's in someone's heart. It's not an intention. It's not bigotry. It's not hatred. It's a pattern of behavior that causes certain outcomes. Yeah, and we had a, um, a piece up on the website uh, this week as well from Karen McLean uh, about this um, and kind of the consequentialist, well, the, the outcomes that are, are driven by this stuff. You know, like if the outcomes are worse for one group, you know, that's that's pretty clear evidence that something else is going on here. Um and yeah, also went into detail around you know what what you're saying around like how how good people's manners are or how they are perceived uh, by both people in the media, other politicians uh, as being uh, good people, um, what whatever that might mean, and that's somehow allowing them to get away with some pretty disgusting stuff as just being uh, a matter of perception, uh, as opposed to having real impacts on on people uh josephine have you been following the story at all yeah yeah um i've just got a couple of um sort of thoughts about it i think that the fundamental thing that has led to for example the the age what do you say the la life expectancy gap between maori and pakeha um, is colonialism and colonialism cannot be separated from capitalism and if we can have a look at what's going on in the health system at the moment, there is a chronic underfunding within the health system happening, especially in the last 40 years of neoliberalism and, you know, abandoning the welfare state. So we have a fundamental crisis in the health system. And unfortunately, our leadership has not taken even the pandemic, a global pandemic, as an opportunity to strengthen it, to expand our capacity to address the needs that we're facing. And we haven't even done that. And not 
not only that, increasingly various aspects of health are becoming commodified. For example, having a GP's fee, having many aspects of the hospital being given, contracted out to private contractors. So there are multiple barriers people are facing in order to access health. And instead of actually, you know, talking about these real issues, which are ultimately impacting Maori in the worst way, we are reducing the discussion to some, you know, very very incremental piecemeal targeted policy within a, you know, within a system that is a failure. So uh, I am really sad that the debate has moved towards this. And of course, you know, bad actors like, you know, um, David Seymour, who actually benefit from the culture wars, um, you know, he would like to claim that he's against it, but he's one of the biggest benefactors of it. Um, get away with reducing the discussion to such a narrow thing when we need to be talking about actual universal health care and actually delivering Maori, you know, uh, the health that they deserve, which was taken away from them through colonial policies to take taking their land away, their resources and their ability to uh, build, you know, a, a resilient community away. So we need... Uh, so solutions that are socialist in nature and universalist in nature. And within those universalist solutions, we need to take care of particular uh, groups with more regard to historical injustices. But as long as we don't, we haven't achieved that, um, I think, you know, this debate is not addressing the fundamental problems. And this is always how this kind of soft culture war or, or whatever you want to call it um, plays out, right? It, it's just chucked on the table um, and people have to deal with it. Um, you know, it, it demands a response on some level. And, but as you say, it, it totally shifts the conversation to being in this very narrow line. Um, I'd say... Mm, yeah. Probably in in some respects, you know, the the early media stories around it were were quite bad. Um, and then they very quickly realized that people reporting it very quickly realized that it had been misrepresented. Like, wait a second, there's all this other information. But then the stories were all just about debunking. You know, like, oh no, this is what it actually is. And yeah, yeah mm-hmm. which is good. Like, you you want actual facts out there instead of um, mistruths. But as you say, that never, that hasn't pivoted at this point. There hasn't, mm-hmm. there's been no theory of change attached to this. Uh, and as long as we're not having those those broader conversations, those bigger conversations that we need to have, it allows these wedge issues to just keep being thrown on the table, like ad infinitum. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, here's the next thing we're going to race bait on. Yeah. Uh, are you going to debunk that that now? Like, you can't you you can't win in this from the left. Um, in a in a progressive sense or whatever, um, in an equity sense, if you're always just having to deal with that, if you're always having to show, oh, actually, I know what the the real information on this is. Um, here's why they are wrong, as opposed to kind of talking about the, the way forward. And our health health system is being sort of like eroded away slowly before our eyes, like. Um, yesterday I went to my GP and the GP fees has increased to like in sixties and seventy into the in that that. Uh, that's how high it is. And then once I talk to my GP, she's asking me whether I have a private health insurance. And so it has come to a point where, you know, all doctors are asking their patients, the GPs are asking patients, do you have a private insurance? Otherwise, this is going to take so long. So the system is so under, what do you say, subpar. And, you know, there's underfunding in this in this area that, you know, 
we can't address the crisis we're facing, the health crisis. So, yeah, we need to talk much more about those issues as well. Yeah, and when we're talking about what racism is and we say, okay, it's a pattern of behavior that causes disproportionate harm to a certain subset of society, but the baseline is that it's causing harm to everyone. It's just, it's causing extra harm to certain people. And so if we can understand that, then we'll understand that tackling racism means tackling the systems that are oppressing all of us. Yes. We cannot actually see these uh, systems separately, colonialism and capitalism, for example. And racism is a function of colonialism. And, you know, for example, if you think about, um, uh, you know, thinkers from the global south like Kwame Nkrumah, he talks about how capitalism is at the root of racism and racism is being exploited to increase, for example, profits um, historically and today. Yeah, and I think when because of our inability to trace racism to its colonial roots, we're left with really shallow interpretations of what's happening. I don't yeah. think it's as simple as David Seymour and Luxon trying this populist narrative, trying to get vote. I don't, I think that is part of it, but I don't think that's all of it. I think what we're seeing is the continuation of the last 200 years of colonial policy and the um, 180 years of treaty denialism. It's the continuation of that treaty denialism. And when you see what they've done, you know, since the last time they tried this line of attack with Don Brash, since then they haven't stopped working. Since then you've had groups like Hobson's Pledge, New Zealand Centre for Political Research, so many other think tanks, you know, Free Speech Union, whatever. They have been consistently normalising this level of racism, spreading conspiracy theories about the treaty, spreading conspiracy theories about who were the true Indigenous, you know, ancient Celts or whatever. Um, And throughout that time, they have created a fertile ground for them to plant their racist seeds again. And that's what we're seeing now is that we're seeing them try this again after doing more preparation so that more of the public accept it. And I don't think it's just to get votes. I think it is genuinely to push back against uh, the recognition of the treaty, against what they fear will challenge their property rights. And so if we understood the uh, fact that these narratives are being used to uphold the colonial state, we come with a different conclusion and it's it's a lot more sinister. Yeah, I think alongside that as well, um, uh, yeah, I think obviously very clearly um, correctly linking this back to New Zealand's colonial history, right? Uh, and one of the things that has been happening this year um, or in the latest um, series of the discourse is to ramp up that rhetoric a little bit uh, in a way that I haven't seen before as as mainstreamed. You know, I'm seeing this this pop up as a talking point in, in media stories, and that's to say that New Zealand Labour are trying to make an apartheid situation here, which is obscene and ludicrous. Uh, but and I wouldn't say it's going unchallenged, mm-hmm. but it isn't being actively challenged when it drops when it's dropped in as a, a PR line or a an argument by ACT candidates or ACT MPs. 
you know, these are people who are representing um, New Zealand in Parliament. Who are, it's an outright lie. You you cannot. It's not comparable. Uh, they and I'm not. It's just so bizarre to me. Has anyone got like insight into why this particular language is being used around this? Because you just have to look at what apartheid was and and what they're saying is happening here, and the, they they shouldn't be compared in any way. It feels like an extension of, you know, the, an, uh, the American politics against affirmative action, calling that discriminatory. It feels like we've imported that line of attack, but, yeah, they're taking it to the extreme of calling it apartheid, and I'm not sure where I, apartheid came from. I just wanted to say that, you know, actually there is a role that Labour plays in in stoking the sort of politics. Um, these sorts of, you know, ludicrous comparisons, for example, would not fly if we actually had, a, you know, a functioning health system, for example. What, you know, how are these arguments able to get um, mileage. People are actually struggling to get uh, healthcare, for example, in New Zealand. The wait lists are so crazy at the moment. Um, and so, like, within such a material condition, these sorts of arguments are flying. And so, Labour does have a role in laying the ground for the growth of these sorts of uh, right-wing ideas. So, I just want to, you know, really... Uh, bring it back to the understanding of, you know, how the failure of centrism and liberalism has always been, you know, one of the key reasons that, you know, creates, close the land for planting the seeds that you said, Salma, mm -hmm. um, which lead to these sorts of beliefs becoming more mainstream and mm -hmm. not being considered as ludicrous as we, we should be thinking um, as common sense. It's ludicrous, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and on that on that note of Labour contributing to this on a slightly different aspect of it, you know, Hipkins coming out and saying, we're going to have a look at this and make sure it's not pushing further discrimination, that's playing right into their narrative, and I have no idea why he framed it like that. It's a common pattern that Hipkins seems to, to sort of to try to be conciliatory towards those really bad impulses. He's, he's done it over and over again this year. Um, for me, I think what, what I noticed this week was the, um, uh, the mainstreaming of this discourse. I think the, the apartheid thing has been around. That's the sort of thing that you would hear on the, was read on the Kiwi blog or the whale oil comments, you know, 10 years ago, and sort of when Hobson's Pledge was first getting started. And these are just um, old Pakia boomers ranting on the internet um, developing this grievance, sharing this grievance with one another. And what I think was remarkable this week was that Mike, Mike Hosking published a column that basically like validated a bunch of that rhetoric. And um, um, he didn't use the term apartheid. I think that's more of an act term when that's being pushed at the moment. But he did, he basically, he, he said mainstream New Zealanders um, implying that that means a very particular um, version of mainstream New Zealand, um, the sort of Pākehā kind of self-image that these people have. Just, um, but this, I think it's important to recognise that um, Hosking has a very, very wide audience. That stuff goes out to hundreds of thousands of people, if not millions of people. It's very, very widely read. 
um, I've, I've um, chatted to people in the media and have got a sense of like what what's going on on these on these websites, and um, it sort of goes back to what you were saying, Kyle, about the um, the pushback against the stuff when the initial narrative goes out, or when there's there's some kind of half truth or mistruth or ridiculous line is published, um, and it can hit a certain level where you basically get like huge widespread uh, um, audience. And then there might be like 20,000, 40,000, 50,000 people looking at the rebuttal. It just, it just falls off massively, like a sort of 10, 10, 10 times fewer people looking at it. So it's a, like these, um, th- these big voices have massive cut through. And I think it's, um, it's remarkable to me that there's not more editorial oversight and there's not more kind of, um, I guess, like direction being led from these publications um, that they just, they let these opinion pieces go on in any direction they want. And that with the politicians kind of aware of this, they can basically start pushing the boat out further. And, and we're, we're seeing this. I feel like it's, it's really scary to me that Hobson's pledge style rhetoric is now sort of finding its way into those more normalized conversation spaces. I think like that's, that's a really big concern. Well, it's all bad and there's no way to escape it. Uh, so that's the podcast. Uh, we're giving up. Now, it's, I think in particular that Hosking piece coming out later in the week, everyone jumped on it immediately. Like it, it was it was very clear what was happening. I feel like, as and I was saying this before the cast as well, although this is some of the worst rhetoric um, I've seen so early in a campaign around trying to drive these wedge issues. There also seems to be like a, a level of inoculation happening as well, where people are, are becoming very, very clear-eyed very quickly uh, as to just how extreme uh, the political right wing in this country uh, are willing to become, if not already are. So I think I think there is some hope there. I'm glad the stuff is happening this far out from the election. So there is an opportunity to to respond to it and to start pivoting back to uh, some of the stuff you were talking about, Josephine, um, around, okay, so what is the solution for this? Like at, at, a, at a systems level? Yeah, okay, let's talk about uh, how underfunded and under-resourced stuff is and how desperate people are uh, that this stuff is sticking for them. And which is the key reason for the division among the working class. And we must remember that, you know, agents like people like Mike Hosking or David Seymour, they are the masters in dividing the working class. And um, we must bring together everyone. And the way to do so is to actually address the pressing issues within the health system. Um, Because if you are within the wealthy class of New Zealand, you can ha- you'll probably have a private insurance. So the health systems, cr- crumbling health system isn't going to impact you like other common Pākehā, ordinary people. Yeah. And I think that's, yeah, I, I don't know if it's worth talking about in, in too much detail, but this is another one of the really interesting ways in which this conversation forms itself is you have a, a bunch of uh, upper class, incredibly wealthy act and, and national voters who are making uh, these complaints about the health system and you know, you've never been on a waiting list in your life you know you know like this is not this is not real this is not something that you need to contend with but it's not the argument isn't aimed at those people those people are already on site they are already uh well well down that rabbit hole uh this is aimed back at the electorate this is aimed at the voting base and creating a narrative and an environment 
which is hostile to discussion of progressivism um, or systems change. Um, it's trying to take that anger and that vulnerability um, and that feeling of disenfranchisement and channel it against a, an other, uh, an enemy. And this is all classic, like, right-wing rhetoric, populist shit you know we, we know this happens and it's so disappointing to see uh labor and hipkins just yeah just say oh, okay we'll, we'll have a look at it you know like, get fucked we really just need some some more strength um from from even from the center to say this is we're not going to like listen to this shit this is what we can well, this is what we're going to do and we're going to fix it but that of course uh reveals that labor is also on their side you know they they don't want to they don't want to put more money into health, um, or, or they would have by now. You know they they would have made these changes at least until whenever their campaign proper starts. They are happy to kick that can down the road and either tap into some of some of those problems themselves, um, or try and weather it. Uh, and yeah, I don't know. We'll, we'll be lucky if some of this doesn't stick. I think if we look at as well who is actually funding these people, it becomes very clear that it's about dividing the working class. You know, it's not by accident that New Zealand's richest man is funding the Axe Party or that Kate Hawkesby is having dinner parties where she invites Axe Party members over. Um, if we had a bit more of a conversation around who's actually funding these groups, I think it would help us to connect, you know, and ask questions like, why is New Zealand's richest man interested in driving a wedge between people and in create you know creating animosity towards maori and towards treaty uh sit towards acknowledging the treaty and towards reparations towards maori you know it because it affects their bottom line and that's where i'd like to see our conversation moving towards the other big funding issue uh that's been in the the news well no it hasn't been in the news and this is that's really weird is that the issue with tertiary funding and and cuts uh this week uh at at vic um university of wellington uh continues uh and no one in the labor party is touching it like there, there's been no and, and no one is asking about it directly as far as i've seen like we, we talked about this previously um i think in, in regards to otago uh, university, the range of the cuts and the, the huge number, and I think it's up over 200 um, roles they're looking to cut at Vic, um, is is probably part of negotiating um, and kind of readying people for less cuts that, that so they don't look as bad. But all of this is imminently solvable. Uh, and it seems like the shortfall isn't really that much comparative to, um, to, to what the government would usually bail things out for what is happening mark uh there's a lot i think i talked about this last time um but what i didn't really have a perspective on last time was the systemic sort of spiraling collapse that's happening um i think it's been a chain reaction and we're i mean you mentioned um otago um there's um um vuw uh waikato uh massey um, AUT, of course, has been through the ringer in the last year. Um, it's 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 a systemic crisis at this point, and I know like this term crisis is ridiculously overused. We need we probably need better language around this, but um, we have ne never actually been in a situation like this with our university system 
where there's been uh, this concurrent sort of collapse and cuts happening across all of these different institutions at the same time. Um, and there's, there's funding issues, as we've discussed previously. But what's, what the, the situation that we've reached now is actually a strategic kind of long-term social stability because the, 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 the extent of the cuts, the, the sweeping nature of the programs that are being disestablished is actually going to set back like a huge amount of knowledge and and community connectivity and a whole bunch of um, a whole bunch of of unintended consequences that um, I think are quite clear to people who sit down and sort of think about how things are connected for you know just a few moments of reflection on like what's going on would kind of get you to the point. Well, um, obviously, if if we remove you know modern language teaching from from a, like all of like Wellington, um, if we remove like secondary school teaching from like Wellington, what's going to happen? Um, yes, there will be consequences. But um, I think it's like for me, the interesting thing that came out this week was a bit deeper. We didn't really have this, this information previously, but actually the um, um, both Vic and Otago uh, approached the Tertiary Education Commission uh, so the TEC is it's an, it's an organisation one of the one of the five thousand entities that makes up the sort of the the devolved government governance structure of New Zealand. I <laughs> maybe shouldn't go into that, but um, that's I think that's kind of an interesting point as well. Like there are five thousand of these different organisations that constitute what we sometimes call government. Um, they all have different brands. They all have different sort of corporate co-papa and and structures. Um, TUC is responsible for basically for career paths and for overall strategy of the, the tertiary sector. Uh, so Vic and Otago had approached them going, we don't, we don't want to cut these programs. Um, and we, obviously we want, we want funding if we can get it. Um, but can we have a discussion? Can you broker a discussion around uh, like resource sharing and, and like can we establish some way to, that we can organize the, the coordinate the programs that are being taught across the universities and the TEC was like no not going to have that discussion we're not going to have that shared discussion um, and I so I think what what comes out is that so like a lot of people that are pointing the finger at labor and yes labor is, is kind of crucial here because uh, they um, the Minister of Education in particular is just not not engaging at all with the extent of, of what um, and not kind of doesn't really seem to have recognized that this is a strategic systemic crisis that needs actual, it's not just about funding, it needs planning and discussion and that we need to get away from this notion of like short-term uh, budget considerations should not be driving long-term strategic decisions about capability. Um, well, that seems obvious to most people but it's seemingly that's, you know, the government's not, it's not the responsibility of the government. That's a, the TEC's job is to, is to have appropriate funding levels for each. Um, but the TEC does, it's focused on teaching and career pathways, right? Um, there's also all these other, this kind of myriad of, of technology and science um, and sort of like R&D sector stuff, which is all happening in a bunch of other organisations as part of the 5,000. So, you know, so just even having that conversation about um, 
Okay, like I'll I'll give you a couple of examples. So um as well as well as modern languages, um and and secondary school teaching, um Vic is proposing to get rid of geophysics. Um geophysics in um in a city where you know there was a fairly serious earthquake a few years ago, damaged a huge amount of buildings. I mean, I actually I think that earthquake and its impact on the New Zealand economy is completely like ignored. We kind of forget that like a huge, huge number of of office buildings in the capital city were had to be abandoned. And just we just pretend like things like that didn't happen when we talk about infrastructure crisis. But um it's just remarkable to me that um that this is even a consideration. Um and this is one of you know some some of the stuff that they do is world leading and it's really important and um and it feeds into like all kinds of things like housing and construction um like large scale infrastructure like the, all all it's all connected and we we have a we ha currently have the system where those connections are, are just unable to be dealt with um it's so I think, yeah, I think we've moved beyond the the sort of short term budget questions, um, and we're now at the point of like, we need we need we need to be having a serious discussion about like a sector wide reform, um, and it needs to happen quickly. And the worst thing about this whole situation is we're just a few months out from this fucking election, um, so we can't actually have a, a decent conversation about it, and we can't have political movement on it. Anything that happens there will have to wait, you know, until at least November or December. But that's kind of too late because the short-term budget considerations mean these, these. Um, well, we're already seeing roles being like teaching roles being disestablished. I mean, a, a classic one is at Waikato, the um, the academic who proposed uh, that that um, that new. Um, that potential um, power power station, the um, the power energy grid storage system in central Otago, um, his role got disestablished. Um, so the the government's spending like hundreds of millions of dollars researching this massive like power system at the moment, um, and the, the the person who kind of came up with the idea is like um, he's he's still sitting in his office supervising PhD students at the moment. Um, but this, I think, is true for a number of people. They've basically um, their roles have been disestablished, and they're just kind of they're they're wrapping up uh, current engagements. Um, still have their offices for a kind of for like maybe an unlimited time period, um, and the universities are like um, just placating students. Yes, you'll be able to finish your PhD. Yes, you'll be able to finish your masters. But um, no one's going to enroll in this program from like twenty twenty four onwards. And that's the situation, you know. So it it, um, it, it can't be dealt with in November. It, uh, we can't have a sort of a working group um, convene in December to sort of look at it and maybe report back at, at January 2025. Like, it's um, it's just not good enough. It's such a small amount of money as well. Wait, have you got any insight into why they aren't just stop gapping it? Like, here's the money. Like, obviously, we need to do some more stuff with this. We still think your system's not working well. It, it seems like they're trying to fail it. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I suspect that on some levels there is some sort of, like, structured kind of managed decline thing in action. I, I wouldn't be surprised if there's a bunch of people in the in, high high up in the public service who who do believe that we have too many institutions that we need to we need to consolidate or centralize 
Um, we, saw, we saw that with the politics. Um, that has been a disaster. That, that disaster will go as part of Labour's legacy. Um, that's, you know, that, that's, that's part of the, the legacy of, of this current Labour government is, is, the, um, is already the... Um, but, I, yeah, I don't, I don't really have any insight into it. I just think, I think that the, it is a small amount of money. You're right. So with, with VUW, um, we're talking about $33 million shortfall. Um, that, um, as several people have pointed out, um, the government, um, through like a completely other area of the government, uh, spends that same amount of money every four days um, um, just kind of consolidating and propping up um, bank mortgages. So, you know, the, you just you look at the comparative amounts um, and, yeah, $33 million isn't really that much. Um, it's it's a drop in the bucket of the money that gets spent on consultants in Wellington each year, that's for sure. Yeah, and it's uh, it's much lower than, you know, the excess amount given away to companies during the wage subsidy scheme, which was, according to some estimates, $9 billion. I think that... Um, this situation is ultimately caused by um, the commodification of education in New Zealand, uh, the neoliberalization of our universities, running universities as businesses rather than as institutions for the public good, where public value is created, not just, you know, churning out some people with um, certain skills that profit makers want to use to increase profits within a capitalist market. So fundamentally, the issue of the crisis within the tertiary sector comes from um, that movement in the in the in the 80s, which led to the commodification of higher education in this country. So um, fundamentally, I think we need to think about um, decommodifying tertiary education in New Zealand. So, like, again, Labour's failures become very clear before our eyes, even in this area. Uh, we're talking about, you know, their campaign promise to the to the student community was three years fees free and they abandoned it after the first year and they keep talking about funds but they have funds for other things right like I remember do, during um, the time when Fletcher was was in you know in conflict with the indigenous community uh, with Maori community who was striking in the southern part of Auckland what was it called what was the strike called sorry Oh. Yeah, Ihumatao, exactly. The Ihumatao protest um, led to the government giving something like 60 to 70 million to Fletcher's. So it's like they became a big benefactor uh, in the struggle. So the government has money to address these issues. And currently I'm in Christchurch here. University of Canterbury is doing well and they're hiring people, whereas other other, um, you know, universities are struck, struggling. I don't think that higher education is something that we should be, you know, exposing to the throes of the global market. Like there are certain conditions that have led to, you know, Canterbury doing well, but the other ones are all struggling. So we need a system where tertiary education is accessible to all and it's decommodified and considered a public good, not a commodity for sale. We're coming back absolutely to this again agree. and again, right? Yep, absolutely agree. Like, but I think that's that's what's missing in the public discourse as well, this understanding of, of what these institutions actually are and what they can 
can potentially be. Um, there's just, I, I, and I, I see a lot of negativity. Um, I, mean, I, I work at UC as well. And well, I, there's probably a bunch of stuff that I would like to say that I can't really um, without getting into a bit of trouble. But um, I, certainly, um, I think there's a lot of misconceptions in the public view of um, both of research and the teaching side of, um, of these institutions. And I think what gets missed is their relationship to community, uh, their relationship to local iwi, their relationship to, um, to the science and technology communities and to the teaching professions and um, to city councils and all the things that they have to offer that, that connects us, that improves our knowledge and understanding and our resilience and our ability to deal with, with crises. Um, and we've seen stuff like all the, all the floods and all the um, things that are happening um, and like something that I think about a lot is um, Cyclone Bola and how the Tarafiti had this, this, this catastrophic situation in the 1980s. There were a lot of lessons were learned, um, but those lessons weren't really put into practice and applied. And, um, and I, I think that that's the place where the, the universities can really help and support our society is that we can learn these lessons and we can remember these things and we can study these situations and we can bring that forward so that it doesn't happen again. And that's, um, you know, that that's part of the public good. And I just, I feel like, um, like I know a lot about what, what is going on and in, in the connections to the community um, that the university has and, and all the things that the university funds and puts resources towards that it just goes unseen and people don't really appreciate it. And I think that's where, when I hear this kind of thing of like, uh, does this country really need eight universities? <laughs> um, and I just, I don't think people are really appreciating that, like that, that diversity and, and scale and, and, and possibility there. Um, and that's not to, you know, I'm not, not to justify some or say that it's all good. Like, I think, you know, there are some problems in the sector and, you know, the, the racism thing is, is definitely something that comes up a lot. In these institutions and there are real problems there um and there are you know there are um some of the workplace conflicts is probably getting into the stuff that i can't talk about um is is really ridiculous and so th yes there is a case for reform yes there is a case for restructuring or kind of rethinking but this whole notion that it has to be driven through market competition uh, that's absurd because these entities are not that that then fundamentally not already not like like pure kind of commercial entities, um, and it's all a sort of kayfabe like that that side of it, um, and they're all competing for for this limited number of students, um, and in ways that I think are kind of degrading to the to the entire sector, and that um, we we really do need a rethink of that. Yeah, and we also I think there is room, like you said, there is room to critique the sector. Like I think the funding models have made universities also uh, distorted, for example, towards the interests of profits over the interests of you know, uh, you know, our communities, local and global communities. So um, there is uh, you know a lot of areas to critique within the university sector. However, they, in my view, they're all fundamentally linked 
to the commodification of education um, uh, and our uni- universities being operated like businesses. Is, is there some argument that the government is just doing a shock doctrine on the tertiary sector? I don't think so, no. I no. think it's just I think it's just simply a case of like they don't, we've had so 40, 40-ish years of, of this kind of neoliberal financialized and in the kind of fiscal and sort of banking realm like monetarism that we're just, we're seeing the end game of it now. Um, and that wasn't predicted um, and it wasn't understood at the time. Um, and like certain people critiqued it, but now we've got like, we've got copious evidence for like what has happened. We're not having a conversation about that. We're not having a public conversation about did Rogenomics fail? Um, like that's taken for granted by most people, but we've, we've never had a legit like high level public conversation about the extent and scope of the failure. It just becomes a left wing, right wing thing where it's like, yes, well, Rogenomics had its problems, but uh, like at least the government's got like good accountancy practices now. And it's like, that's not good enough. We need, we need, to, we need, a, I think, a broader conversation about that. And I guess this sort of ties back to the stuff we were talking about previously is that we have this kind of Liz Trussian sort of like frenzied weirdness um, happening with the sort of the nexus of, of people that are involved with the Luxon campaign um, who are just feeding this kind of doctrinaire 1980s, early 90s style neoliberalism back into the public conversation. Um, and that's happening with education. It's happening with health. Um, you, can, you can see the influence starting to come through. So instead of like moving on, we're actually kind of going back to that past we're just we're unable to get through it, and I don't. I know I've spent years trying to figure this out. Like what, why? Um, it's yeah. still parts of it are kind of a mystery to me. I think there's like obvious political uh, political economy stuff, but then I think there's some weird like Pakia psychology stuff there mm-hmm. that I, I haven't quite got my head around. Um, but yeah, I think it needs to be dealt with. You know, just don't quite know how to deal with it. Because you've got Labour and National and they both fundamentally agree with neoliberal ideology and that's the problem. And, you know, it just seems to become more and more clear to me that the only defence that we've got against this global rise in neoliberalism uh, is te tiriti o waitangi. It's the only thing that we've got in Aotearoa that has some legal power um, and that's why I think those same actors, those same neoliberal actors are pushing against the treaty. Yeah, yeah absolutely. absolutely. I think it comes down to the sort of the, the property rights view of, of reality. Um, and that's pretty much anything that um, anything that that means we have like less capitalism, we moderate capitalism is seen as a repudiation of capitalism. Um, and I think that's a really, really bad place for the left because, like, yeah, we can kind of we can go out and want to destroy capitalism. We we might want to erode or kind of mess with things. Um, but as soon as we kind of give into that thing of like, well, it's just inevitable. It's just it kind of undoes that. Um, but the problem is that, like, yes, like even if you believe in capitalism, you should be supportive of having less capitalism because, like, right now we can't sustain the current situation that we're in. Um, we need we need some moderation. We need some sort of release valves. We we need um, we need some kind of pressure release, um, and that. Um, but that I think anything that is that even suggests regulation is seen as bad and evil. And there's just like this whole movement there to just kind of shut down discussion about it. 
Um, and it's just it's remarkable to me that the extent of the failures, the documented extent of the failures here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, uh, are so well known and, um, and we see them every day and yet we still haven't got this kind of public acknowledgement of, you know, uh, was like was Rogenomics a failure? Was was Ruth in Asia and the mother of all budgets a failure? Like we just, I think people on the left have always been keen to have this conversation, but it's often been dismissed as like uh, the left are just bitching and moaning about the business roundtable or whatever. But also it's, because it's the, more than that, the reforms originally came out of Labour, so anyone in that Labour camp is like, we can't talk about this because it uh, indicts us. You know, I think right. that has something to do with it. Yeah, I I, I certainly think you. Um, there is a real hesitancy and a reticence to engage with that topic because yeah, it's like, like who founded the ACT Party? Uh, well, they were all from Labour. But I'm going to do a really bad segue here and, and just try and get us through a couple of the other shitty things that happened uh, this week uh, to tie us up. Yeah, we're talking about, uh, you know, accountancy practices and stuff, but we didn't even get those really. And that's been evident uh, this week with Michael Wood just not knowing what shares he had apparently. Um, and ending up on the wrong side of Chris Hipkins. Um, it just another distraction um, and another thing for our media to latch onto. Uh, I don't think anyone can complain that he has had to resign, uh, but it's coming into a campaign season. It's, it's not useful information um, at this point. Alongside that, uh, we've had kind of increasing discussion uh, around how conflicts of interests work especially in regards to Luxon's uh, property portfolio. Uh, we've seen a, like some, some decent work out of uh, people like Bernard Hickey around this. Like, okay, well, if, if this is a conflict of interest, are all MPs or, or the majority of MPs by a large margin, do they have a conflict of interest when they're talking about housing policy, when they're making legislation about housing policy? If we're to accept uh, that divestment of 10 $10,000 worth of shares is a conflict of interest issue for our for our ministers, um, for our legislators, then maybe we should have a wider conversation about that. Do we think that's going to end up becoming a an important narrative? Uh, is it going to be something that's going to, going to stick here or nah? I think, I think it's something I've seen over the last few months. So I, I definitely think there's more and more awareness of it. I think there's, it's a, a recurring critique of, of our parliament that it's not representative of um, of the say the whole working population um, that it's basically a homeowner a landowner parliament um, so yeah and I think you know there is awareness of that um, but yeah maybe what's what's interesting about this um, is and maybe it's more productive for us to to sort of spin the conversation this way when we can is to yeah not not go on about Michael Wood's fuck up but to be like well what yeah what is a conflict of interest I think it's super relevant and I think like a lot of people are pretty frustrated by um, this. It's, you know, it's very easy to see it as as kind of a double standard. I think one thing I've noticed is that we're having that conversation at large, uh, where in other Western, democracy, Western democracies, heavily air quoted, the conversation in that space has been about the ruling elite and often been driven by far right uh, rhetoric um, and, you know, kind of the, the draining the swamp stuff. But that hasn't really stuck here. That hasn't been something which has been able to take root to the same extent. Uh, instead, everyone's kind of getting hammered with that at once, which might also switch people off and, and get them not to voting. It might also suppress the vote if they think, you know, no one's on their side. But it does open up space on the left in a way that the kind of culture war, like go after the liberal elites 
um, narrative doesn't often give space for. The other the other thing in that kind of conversation at the moment is this this conversation around uh, donations, which is very interesting to kind of see how that plays out, and especially see the way in which people try and I don't know if, if be centrist about it is the right word, but be like presume savviness about it. Earlier in the year, um, it came out that, you know, ACT and National were being funded in the millions. Uh, Graham Hart was mentioned earlier in the in the podcast um, as, as throwing a whole bunch of money to the right wing. But just in the last week, we've had a, a large donation from James Cameron uh, to the Green Party, uh, and it's giving people all kinds of feelings. Yeah, can the left take money from rich people? Is it allowed? <laughs> the big question of of the of the day. My first thought when I saw that was like, finally, you know, what have you been doing in New Zealand all this time? <laughs> um, um, I've met James and Susie. I think that they're generally nice people. I don't know too much about them, but you know, if you're gonna be, a, if you're gonna call yourself an environmentalist and you're wealthy, well, put your money where your mouth is, and they have so. Personally, I'm glad that they're using their money in that way. And I think it's absolutely fair that the left takes that money, considering how many millions are being pumped into the right wing. From actors who we know push quite negative narratives as well. Yeah, the, the question of conflicts of interest and which is, you know, extended in this discussion about donations is an important one, I think. And I do think that it, it does matter that, you know, for example, Christopher Luxon has so many properties and he's going to be, you know, the person going to set agen- the agenda of our social and economic policies if he wins the election. I think it's really important to consider the conflicts of interest in that area that he has. But at the same time, uh, we can, we, we'd also need to sort of, um, what do you say? scrutinize the organizing principles and the policies of so-called left-wing movements, including the green movement. And um, oftentimes the solutions that they offer, especially in the area of of you know climate are are rooted in capitalism right like for example james shaw's um, policy recent policy which was he called was the most historic one and or something like that um was to give uh, you know 140 million um support to this company called new zealand steel which is owned by you know jp morgan um the city group blackrock and so forth so even the green party i don't know why is it that's you know a millionaire or billionaire is interested in in giving the green green party um you know, um, funding probably it's because they don't really po- pose a threat to uh, to capital. And um, in their time in the in the parliament over the last three years, I feel like you know they haven't really challenged capital in their time there. Um, Marma Davidson was homelessness minister, and you know she could have been there being the voice of the community of the people who are struggling instead she went ahead along with uh the labor labor's larger policy so i don't know you know it does, yeah i'm not really um convinced with the greens being the solution or actually even having the sort of ideological basis to address the climate crisis that we're facing i i agree with all of that i just wanted to say that i found it quite 
funny that, you know, the right wing attacked the Greens policy, tax policy, you know, calling it envy and stuff. But here you have some rich people funding it. So obviously not it's not everyone's coming from a place of envy. Maybe some people actually have compassion, you know. But I agree with everything you said, jo- Josephine. I mean, all of our environment, almost all of our environmental responses, if you go through them, like I went through the Jobs for Nature um, funding and almost all of them were just a transfer of wealth to the polluting industries. And that's a path that I've seen the Greens go down and it is disappointing. Yeah, and their last year's policy was as as well was another one where they gave millions of dollars to the you know the most polluting industry, which is the dairy industry, um, for research. When you know we should be talking about why don't they use their profits they made through polluting and destroying our rivers and our environment into you know their into cleaning up their own shit. You know why should we have to pay them? Uh, when they are one the most profitable industry in New Zealand and the most polluting, they should, you know, be responsible in cleaning up their mess, not the, you know, the public um, treasury or the public money. Yeah, I guess my take is um, James Cameron, you cheapskate, 50K. Come on, mate, <laughs> pony yeah. up. Give us a little bit more. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't really care about... Um, about that one in particular, uh, as as you both noted, like he's he's not giving it to them because he thinks it's going to be radical change. Um, you know, they're a they're a safe space mm-hmm. for uh, rich liberals with an environmental bent. Like, I mean, it's great. Like, and, and if it gets some funding and it lets them like push out um, the tax narrative um, and help to provide pressure to right some of those inequities that's a that's a good over time but it's not going to get us where we need to be i've said for a long time like if you're if you're a left electoral party you need to have a broad-based movement and you need to be getting like ten dollars from a million people right like that that's that's what the organizing strategy should be that's what the um funding strategy should be but it's not something the greens have really been interested in the james cameron donation is is where they've been, what they've aimed at. And it's where a lot of their funding comes from. It comes from upper middle class um, and wealthy people, which is, you know, that like, that's fine. Like, that's the, that's the nature of our, of our electoralism. Uh, but it's not going to help to drive change even close to the, to the narrative that they purport to support. Uh, and that's a shame. Not, not into the, the kind of midterm uh, and, and longer term problems with that. Yeah, and I guess they haven't been speaking to the general population enough to make um, that happen, the the $10 from a million people thing happen. And so they are having to rely on wealthy people to donate. So hopefully there is some reflection going on there as to why they're not speaking to their um, base. And that same could be said for Labour. Labour used to get a lot more small donations and now they're making very little in comparison to Acta National because they've lost that base. And why would wealthy people put their money behind Labour when they've got perfectly good uh, right-wing parties? Yeah, to do the, the their work for them. So, yeah, they're quite happy to fund um, the right-wing. And, and that 
it, it was really interesting when, you know, how we identified who the funding body for the Green Party is. And in my time in New Zealand, like when I first arrived, I was attracted to the Green Party. Some of the most inspiring leaders, you know, that I um, I thought was amazing came from the Green Party. And then uh, more and more, uh, as I, you know, uh, started learning more and more about New Zealand politics and uh, uh, following it closely, I realized that, you know, th this party is kind of like um, a liberal guilt party for um, rich environmentalists and middle class uh, environmentalists. They feel a little bit bad about the capitalist system, but they don't feel, you know, that it's so bad that we need to have a transformative change. So let's just give a little bit to the Green Party so we can, you know, address our guilt. This is kind of what I felt like last uh, election, for example, I was a I was supporting the Green Party and sort of like spreading its message in my own ways. And then so I went to the Green Party celebration after the elections and I was just su surprised at, you know, the the kind of, you know, the Green membership. They all were from upper middle class or middle class backgrounds. There were hardly any, you know, ordinary people. People were wearing very posh clothes and it was really interesting interesting to see who is the base of the Green Party and why it is their politics is limited to those groups of people. Yeah, I think part of that is making it's it's the parliamentary system and the sort of um, you know, to, to use that democracy. phrase like um, capitalist realism that there isn't there, there isn't a mass workers party at the moment and the scope for that is, is it's it's kind of massively diminished. I mean that was the the achievement of neoliberalism really was to kind of foreclose on on mass movements actually having a, a democratic influence, um, and you can see that in in Australia and Aotearoa. You can look at the membership of the Labour parties in both countries, and um, and you can plot over time as the mass membership has basically decreased. You can you can see it very directly, um, and that it, it just kind of parallels the the rise of of that of that style of of well that sort of transfer of power um, back back to corporations, um, so I think um, yeah I I don't know I would like to I'm not I would like to not so sort of defend the Green Party but maybe just kind of add some nuance I think that's that's one dimension of it I think the Green Party uh, in Aotearoa is more more complicated um, I think there are lots of different kind of layers to it and they often um, the I think that middle class liberal thing is very strong, and but it often it's the most visible part, and it really probably shouldn't be the most visible part. And and there are factions like there are in other parties, um, and there are you know like there's a diversity there. It's just that I think when when it comes to resources, when it comes to donations, when it comes are to, you a green member? Sorry, Mark. Ah uh, yes. I see. Well, I have just been. Wanted on, to I've know. been in a, um, I don't, actually don't know if I am right now, but I've I've been a Green member on and off like for a long time. Um, I probably I'm at, actually probably at my most diminished support for them this year than I've mm. ever been because I've been just increasingly just a bit frustrated with yeah right. just that sense of like I don't I, I kind of I agree that um, that it, they are playing into the sort of narratives about how politics is supposed to work. And I, like this, this whole median voter thing that Labour is fixated on, um, this this sense of like we need to 
we need to be narrative driven rather than just going out and knocking on people's doors and just doing all that traditional stuff that for some reason, the professionalization of political campaigning has like moved away from that. But it's still like, I think it's still relevant and it's still really important. And I just, uh, and I like to say I don't understand, but every time I sort of say that, I have people who've worked on like political campaigns and my Twitter mentions going, you wouldn't believe the conversations I've tried, the arguments I've tried to have with people about this um, and what I've been told. And it's just like, yeah, but that's, that's, I think really, I guess that's what the point I was trying to make, not so much about the middle class liberals, but more about the, the professionalization of the people working in the head office. Um, and that, I think that, to me, that's what underlies a lot of this, that they are, they are making the environment more friendly for those middle-class liberals and opening up that space to sort of like um, be, be the sort of be-all and end-all. Yeah, I just want to say that one key moment in my sort of, <laughs> um, sort of um, when I completely lost my, any faith in the Greens was, and the Green membership was, um, after, you know, Jacinda Ardern's 2020 campaign, it really didn't have much substance. She was riding the COVID wave. She didn't really present any, you know, impressive, um, campaign, uh, promises like she did in 2017. So it was very muted on policy. But one thing she was quite, um, what do you say? And her campaign focused on quite prominently was to say that we will never uh, even consider the wealth tax. Um, and this is some sort of weird conspiracy that the right wing is saying that labor are interested in the wealth tax. We are completely not interested in it. So the, I felt like the whole campaign was speaking towards, you know, a particular, they were targeting particular kinds of voters in, uh, for, uh, for that re-election. And despite that, the Greens and the Green membership voted for an agreement with the with the Labour Party to join the government instead of, you know, sitting in opposition and using that as, um, uh, you know, an opportunity to call the hell out of them as they, you know, continue the sort of poly crisis we are experiencing in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Um, I read someone said that James Shaw recently said as well that they're not going to take any bottom lines to Labour. Um, and, you know, my take on it, maybe it's a bit extreme, but I think that our left parties need to have bottom lines, even if it means putting national and acting government. Uh, I know that most people disagree with that, but as far as I'm concerned, thinking long term, that's the only way we're going to be able to get wins and that might mean that we suffer for a while. And obviously, there are other people who will suffer more than me. But the alternative is that we just carry on with this binary of Labour versus National and nothing will change. Yeah, I don't even think it's... When people make that argument, it's deeply unserious to me because it's not the left-wing parties that are going to be putting National Act in power. It's Labour not negotiating. It's Labour refusing to have that discussion. That's, that's Labour putting National Act in power. It's not the left-wing parties. Even if they're not in government, um, the Greens can like vote on budgets. Labour can act as a minority government um, and the Greens can be outside of cabinet um, and on the crossbenches. They can choose to do that. And, to, and while having bottom lines around, you know, the tax plan, for example, because we know these things are needed. You, you know, we need yeah. these, these, these big changes to meet the public crisis. Like, Climate is obviously the the one that's swiftly coming in, but um, 
inequity, inequality, uh, the economic state of things, our infrastructure crisis, et cetera, et cetera. All of these just need more money. Like you're going to have to do something about that. Like you're going to have to restructure a whole bunch of stuff as well because the systems and the, the frameworks are not capable of, of meeting those needs. The left should have bottom lines to force labor to the left on those. And if labor chooses not to do anything about that, whose fucking fault is that? Like it's not the minority party. Um, yes. It's only the minority party insofar as that's what we painted as, but that's a narrative choice and nothing else. Um, anyone who's serious about negotiating, anyone, any political actor who is serious about actually trying to change things needs to have a hard line. Otherwise, you're just you're just playing. You're just you're just having a joke, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Now, I agree with you absolutely, Summer. It'd be nice if the sort of election discourse was on that topic. You know, about what what are those bottom lines? What policies should we take forward? Yeah, it's not even green policy as far as I know, of, by the way. Like, yeah, sure, sure, saying that was not approved by the party. <laughs> um, so. Yeah, we'll see yeah. what happens uh, coming up. We're in a very, a very strange place at the moment. It just feels like all this performative stuff going on. Yeah, and people aren't engaging with the the, the serious and severe problems that we have to deal with. Um, yeah. Which does make me wonder, like, what you know, should we on the left actually be putting more effort into extra parliamentary democracy and kind of not really taking parliamentary democracy as seriously? I mean, absolutely. Um, it comes back to the funding question. Yeah, I think so. I totally think so. We need to question the parliamentary democracy, uh, you know, as a system itself. What has it been delivering? Is it really democratic in nature? Like, why is it that a lot of our issues just continue and oftentimes worsen instead of even, you know, even though they're so obvious before our eyes, there are no solutions. So we need to ask if parliamentary democracy is really democratic or if it's working at all i think we need to wrap it there um but it's a good place to do so uh we have we've gone on uh for a while and we're <laughs> we're at risk of tipping into a, an entire uh, new episode at this point uh thank you so much for joining me everyone uh thank you for joining us uh for the first time summer thank you for having me if people want to find uh your work where can they do that uh you can go to all.org.nz Fantastic. And thank you to my co-hosts as well, uh, Josephine and Mark. Thank you too. And thank you for listening, everyone. If you've enjoyed it, uh, give it a share, share it around, get this conversation happening. The main thing it needs is just more and more people talking about it. Uh, Force the conversation into the mainstream. It's very doable. We've seen what the right wing can do in terms of just taking the most ridiculous uh, narratives and just dropping them uh, into the shitstorm. The conversations we're having on the left are far more important uh, and far more nuanced and far more directly tied to reality than any of these, in my opinion. So share it around, have these conversations uh, with people that you know, with your friends, your family, uh, with your elected representatives, if you can stomach it, uh, and keep on listening. Uh, Ready yourself for the election campaign. It's going to get a little more unhinged, I imagine. Uh, But if we organise and if we... Uh, get involved. I think there's a, a lot to win here as well. I, I really think there's an opportunity here to to, to make real change. Kia That's been another episode. We'll catch you next time. now.
Fucking rain It feels like we're 